0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman.
1: Oh, I'm Louise Polanker. <laughs> forgot it was my
0: turn. <laughs> Thanks for showing up. <laughs> yeah, sure.
1: Right
0: here. Media Path is your go to resource for entertainment. Our mission is to hit you with so many fun diversions that you will completely blow off your more important daily responsibilities. Sweet. And today, we have a fantastic guest. This guy is a stellar example of how to diversify in the entertainment business. He's been a magician, a DJ, a stand-up comic, a game show host, a talk show host, a producer, an executive producer, and an author, and he's good at all of them. He's Mark Summers, known him for a long time, so happy to have him with us today. Wildly successful in many areas, but he's also had to endure some very serious challenges in his life as well and we're going to hit on all those topics with mark summers in just a few minutes wheezy what do you have for us this time so
1: i've got a couple of picks from a path we'll call who am i we'll start with a netflix show called atypical on netflix i like the way i said netflix twice as if they pay me they don't uh sam is 18 he's on the autism spectrum and his efforts to earn independence and maybe even a girlfriend put his entire family on a fast track towards self-discovery Atypical comes to us from Robia Rashid and Seth Gordon. It stars Keir Gilchrist, Jennifer Jason Lee, Michael Rappaport, and Bridget Lundy-Payne as the sister, who's just outstanding. She's so great. It's really fun. The show is about relationships. Each family has storylines which intersect in honest, direct, quirky, and compelling ways. The performances are exceptional. Atypical on Netflix, four seasons strong and flowing. It's a great stream. Jump in. So the next pick I have is, uh, and I just it just came out. So go ahead and check it on your Netflix. It might come up immediately when you click upon your Netflix. It's called Naomi Osaka on Netflix. is a three part miniseries. Once again continue to say the word Netflix as if I'm on their payroll. Naomi has been in the news for her refusal to take part in tournament interviews, citing mental health issues. This intimate series follows Naomi Osaka as she explores her cultural roots and navigates her multifaceted identity as a tennis champ and rising leader. Directed by Oscar nominee Garrett Bradley, the series follows Naomi over the course of two years, mapping out the development of her game and her views about the role she can play in the world. We open on home video of two tiny little girls being coached by their dad to play tennis. So what you immediately grasp is that tennis is somebody else's dream. Naomi's voiceover tells us that they practiced for six hours every day and that her dad did not talk to the other tennis parents. To me, that means that the girls were mainly socializing within their own bubble and working so hard at tennis that they had little opportunity to think and feel and dream about their own destiny. It was being mapped for them. Naomi, of course, excels at tennis. By age 20, she defeats Serena Williams, and she's world famous. But all this was dad's dream. Sports parents are an even rougher breed than stage parents. Kids are raised to be winners killers. Emotional development is not a priority. But this piece is not a bad dad doc. In fact, he seems lovely and is in it rarely. This is a documentary about Naomi's journey to discover herself. She has a lot to tell us on her own terms, and in this format, she can pilot the narrative. The show is contemplative and quiet and deliberate, mirroring what we come to know about Naomi's personality. The voice which Naomi is finding now speaks out about human rights racial injustice, and mental health, bringing awareness to these important issues. And perhaps most importantly, Fritz, you may now add to your collection a Naomi Osaka Barbie doll.
0: Nice. Yeah. I think she did the world a great service, calling attention to social anxiety. And can athletes, when they sign these huge contracts, be forced— To do all this great public testimony in front of millions of the media and Mm -hmm. the eyes of the world, if that's not what you're good at or have a penchant toward, you know, Uh, and I felt so bad for her, I really didn't. I think the whole world sort of empathized with her situation.
1: Absolutely. And if you're not into sports and you never watch the interview process, there can be like a lot of judgment fueled in these questions and it can it can be very intimidating when you're a kid really. You're just a she's still a kid. You know, yeah. she's only twenty three years old and you're supposed to you're not Gen Saki. Like how are you supposed to field these questions with style and not just start crying? She might
0: change the whole paradigm for that, like whether you're going to have to be forced to to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's going to be interesting. I love that. All right. I have a couple of good ones. The first one is a Netflix uh, series, mini series called How to Become a Tyrant. I was interested in watching this because as I've said on this podcast many times before in the last four years, we've had our first exposure to authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And the end game of authoritarianism is a dictatorship run by a tyrant. We weren't there yet. But we got a little taste of the possibility over the last four years. This is a limited series that goes into the playbook that dictators use to maintain absolute power. Guys like Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Muammar, Gaddafi, Idi Amin, the Kim dynasty of North Korea, Papa Doc Duvalier of Haiti. Timely now that the assassination has happened to their most recent leader. There have been endless docs about each one of these characters, but this is not your typical dry history channel droning. It actually has a sense of humor. It's narrated by Peter Dinklage, Mm -hmm. Mr. Game of Thrones. He makes snarky, funny comments as he's hitting you with the tactics that tie all these dudes together, like seizing power, crushing their rivals, setting up a reign of terror, controlling the truth, creating a new society, or promising to. The ultimate goal is ruling forever. Now, these are extremes of dictatorship in the 20th century, but some of the concepts are going to feel hauntingly familiar Mm -hmm. about what we've just lived through. And while we're talking about authoritarians, Mm -hmm. Landslide is the latest book by Michael Wolff. And this chronicles the last days in the Trump White House. It's the third book he wrote about Trump. The bombshell one was the last one, Fire and Fury, which was the go-to book. It was talked about on the media for months. Mm -hmm. This is equally as powerful and even more meaningful because after all the damning revelations he laid out in Fire and Fury, he got White House officials, including Trump, to sit down and talk with him again, which is mind-blowing. It's chock full of smoking hot reveals. But I'll give you what I think was the most eye-catching one in this whole book. The whole idea that Trump swearing that he won the election, actually won it by a landslide, didn't come from Trump himself. It came from Rudy Giuliani. You might remember on election night, the first half of the returns were favoring Trump, which is how the pundits said it would go. Republicans would come out of the gate strong. But as the evening progressed, the Dems would recover because of mail-in and absentee ballots. Well, when the momentum for Trump started to stall out about halfway through the night and Trump's inner circle began to sense the things that were going to go south, Rudy, who was, according to reports, shit-faced, ran into the room And said to Trump, what you have to do is go on the air right now and claim victory. you got to jump on it before Biden does, because perception is everything. And Trump was persuaded, so that's exactly what he did. Then Trump gradually added his own color to this fantasy, like the election has been stolen. And then after election night, Michael Wolff goes into all the wackadoodle behavior that happens as more and more attorneys are hired to go out and stop the steal among the state governments in battleground states. And you're thinking to yourself, how did they recruit so many nutbag lawyers to threaten their law licenses by going to these various states with these conspiracy theories? And none of them worked. Lots of interesting stuff. This is one of four post-Trump books I swore that I would never invest any more time in Trump-oriented literature, but I couldn't help myself. (laughs) This might go down as the oddest and darkest time in American history. It's hard to get enough. And today's the day where Peter Rucker's book comes out called I Alone Can Fix It.
1: Now, are you going to read all these books, Fritz?
0: I'm going to read – I I finished this one, and then I'm going to read the Peter Rucker book, and I don't know if I'll read the other ones. I don't know. I I have this dark fascination with the whole thing. And – and, and here's, I think, the, the eeriest overarching piece of information from this book. Mm-hmm. And I heard the two authors talking about this last night on MSNBC, that, you know, Trump may not in his soul of soul believes that he won this election. He may not even care, but he obsesses over chaos. He just likes the chaos. He he loves that people in his immediate circle fight with one another. He loves to see him face off. It makes him smile. So it may not be whether he wants to be president again. He just loves chaos. And so we have to get Dr. Freud in here to figure out why that's true.
1: Yeah. But, and I don't know. I, I mean, I spent five years just obsessively reading these books about yeah. what was happening. And then somehow after Joe was elected, I just kind of I said, you know, I can Rachel can tell me everything I need to know that's in this book, or Nicole, and I just I'm taking kind of a break from it. Although I could easily spiral back back in if you're telling me that there's some stuff in here that. Well, I Well,
0: this was good, and, and again, it's a, it's it's ridiculous because even after what was revealed in Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff, Trump did a like a two-hour sit-down with him. And and they attributed that to the fact that he doesn't get as much attention as he did when he was president and he craves attention. So anybody that will listen to him, he likes to talk to.
1: All right. Well, let's go over with, you know, some remote podcasting equipment and say, hey, uh, well, you can talk as long as you want,
0: dude. It'd be fun to be in the presence of Satan. No, I think I'll pass. I will pass. All right. Now to our guest. This man and I go back 25 to 30 years when we did stand up together. And I think the last time I worked with him, it might've been at the ice house, but it was probably at the Laugh stop at Encino, which is now a barely legal time massage parlor. He was the host (laughs) of double dare on Nickelodeon. My children grew up and loved that show. He hosted Unwrapped on the Food Network. He executive produced Dinner Impossible and Restaurant Impossible on the Food Network. He hosted Home Show on ABC, Our Home and Lifetime, History's IQ on the History Channel, wrote a really wonderful book, Everything in Its Place, My Trials and Triumphs with Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. What an accomplished guy, Mark Summers. I'm so happy to see you again
2: sir. Well, it's nice to see you. I remember the la- I used to left up out in Newport Beach originally. Well, that was a good gig. That, was, that I, was you know, it was a great place to try out material because it was the best audience <laughs> in the world and you could go out there with the worst stuff and get a laugh and build confidence so that when you went to the improv improv or the comedy store, you right. felt good. You know? And there
0: was nobody from show business down there. Ever. ever just try it out. Ever. And that was a great room and if you wanted to work Monday nights, it was a sacrifice but you, but it was worth it because Monday night they had a strip show before they had the comedy Ooh, I show. I don't remember that. And the audience was enlightened by the time you got on this, There were women seriously Class. stoked by to get
2: on. let me apologize for my voice. I'm just getting over bronchitis, and I was uh, a scratchy throat, so i'm this is the first day I can sort of talk. So uh, it's not my normal broadcasting voice, but I'll do the best I can. Well, I'll well we're you.
1: excited to hear what you've been holding on to saying for these last. Years. <laughs> now, Mark, I'm gonna take you back. Cause okay. I have a little like trip down your memory lane for you. Thomas, if you could click on these um these photographs. Uh, so ah! do you recognize where we are, Mark?
2: Uh, if I had my glasses with me, I probably
1: Okay, so fresh off the boat from suburban Buffalo, I was an intern on a show called Our Magazine. You were? Starring the unnervingly handsome Gary, Gary Collins. Collins. Yes. You were an
2: intern on the show? So
1: we know each other.
2: Oh my you God. You were
1: the warm-up guy. Yes. And what I remember most fondly, Mark, is that when an audience member would ask how many people work here... You would
2: say about half. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> as a warm-up guy, it always works. Where the hell did you get that picture?
1: I took it. I was like a did nervy little really? intern that came on set with a camera. You've
2: got to give me a copy. That's sure. Crazy. Gary was the nicest guy to so me. So nice. When I was trying to become a host, and I was some young kid, um, I got him to sit down and do an interview with me, where I got to, you know, do six minutes as a resume tape. Okay. And he said to me, "You don't have host hair." I said, what the hell does that mean? He said, you don't look like a host. So he said, here, go to my barber. So it was this very nice lady. I think she was on uh, the lot at Paramount. And I went over there and I went to pay. And she said, Gary's got the first one. They're on you after this. And, you know, there aren't many guys left like that. Who oh, do my. Kind of yeah, life. he was a nice
0: guy.
1: Yeah, he was. He I was liked
2: his wife, guy. too. She was yeah. a sweet She guy. was lovely. Yep. Now, so, I,
0: I think what might be the proudest uh, career achievement for you, I think you'll agree, is you are... The Godfather of Slime. <laughs> On Double Dare, you brought slime into the American zeitgeist. Yeah. Really? It was so much fun to see people get slimed, and you ultimately get slimed. What is slime? How did that happen? Well, back in the day, the original recipe
2: was vanilla pudding, uh, green food coloring, and applesauce. Oh, wow. Now, I just we just brought Double Dare back, and we shot 60 of them. <clears throat> and, and they have this company that makes... Um, uh, slime for Nickelodeon And you can change, ready for this term The viscosity of it Do you want wow. it to be thin, wow. do you want it to be thick Do you want it to hang on your face you want face? it to ooze or hang I, And <laughs> so we, we spent a whole day at the factory Just trying to figure out what kind of slime We should be so using on that show
1: you raised a generation of slime scientists I, You know I
2: did, and what's fascinating is to me All the reality shows that are going on today are actually being done and produced by people who grew up watching me. That's, yeah. And then they just took it another step further. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, you were really good because you
0: never talked down to the kids. You They were equal participants with you in this hijinks that was going on. And do
2: you know why that was? I never wanted to host a kid's show. I had been around town forever, like mm. you, trying to do something. Mm-hmm. You got on doing weather, mm-hmm. and you were mm-hmm. having a really good stand-up mm-hmm. career. And I was still doing warm-ups, and so I wanted to blow my brains out. And... <laughs> Um, A friend of mine, Dave Garrison Who's sadly no longer around Was a ventriloquist And he got called for the audition Now they had auditioned A thousand people In New York City Didn't like anybody Dave gets this phone call Here in L.A. And he goes Look, I don't want to be In front of the camera anymore I want to be a producer Why don't you go to this Instead of me Oh my gosh So I walked in And they said Dave Garrison I said Well, my name's Mark Summers But uh, Dave couldn't make it It It's okay if I go on Instead of him Yeah, okay, come on in And so I was the first guy To audition in L.A. They had auditioned Another thousand people and so it came down to me and another guy. And I called up the exec producer and I said, well, how are you going to make the decision? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, uh, well, what's the big problem? He said, well, when you guys auditioned, you did not uh, audition with kids. We had adults playing the part of kids. And I said, well, uh, I, I have kids. He goes, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. I said, well, I used to be a magician and I used to do magic shows. He goes, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. So I said, well, why don't you put me and whoever this other guy is in a room with kids and and – do The show and let the best man win. He said, I'll call you back. And an hour later, he called me and said, What are you doing over Labor Day? I said, Coming to New York? He goes, Yeah. So they flew into New York. <laughs> wow. And they put me in a studio with kids. And then I left. And whoever this other person is, I still don't know who it was, came in and did his thing. And two days later, they called me and they said, Congratulations, you're the host of Double Dare. And I said, Explain something to me. <laughs> you auditioned a thousand people in New York and a thousand people in LA. Why did I get the job? And he said, Well, quite honestly, The two guys, you know, you and the other guy were were about the same. But at the end of his audition, he looked in the camera and said, Is that it? Or you guys want me to do something else? And I looked in the camera and said, We'll be back with more Double Dare after this. Because (laughs) I threw it a commercial. They thought that was more professional. And that changed my life. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting.
2: And so I didn't want to be a, a kid show host. And so I approached it like I was doing Jeopardy or Wheel. And I decided, you know, I never talked to the kids in a squeaky voice. You know, do you have a girlfriend? How are you? <laughs> so I just treated them <laughs> like grownups. Yeah. And uh, would make fun of them at times. And they would sort of screw around back to me. And when they went to focus groups, the kids said they thought I was like some crazy uncle or or maybe some, you know, teenage friend that they had. They never thought at the time I was 34, married and had two kids, but they thought I was like 25. So it worked out. My kids love that show. How old are your kids
0: now? Uh, Well, the the ones that watched you were 33 and 31. I'm sorry to tell you that, my friend. You know, you're old, don't you?
2: Well, my son just turned uh, forty-one, so yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, but I, but I I will say Nickelodeon was the only, you know, they didn't want to watch Disney cartoons all the time, but Nickelodeon was the only channel we as parents were comfortable letting them watch, and all that on any given weekend was funnier than Saturday Night Live. That was I agree. a funny show. It at, was Keenan Thompson his career. Yeah. And still,
2: obviously, doing great. Yeah, doing great. Saturday Night Live. So and all that was that, stuff. that was
0: a great era for my kids that, that you heard
2: when you were on there. It was fun, fun time. I really enjoyed it. So,
1: what do kids say to you who grew up watching you and are now in the industry, are now doing something professional? What do they say about how you influence them?
2: Well, I tell you, it, I'm at that point in my life where things are creepy because people come up to me and they go, "Oh my God, you're an icon." I was literally, I was sitting uh, outside at uh, Cheesecake Factory, in Beverly Hills, a Saturday. And a car drove up, and went, "Oh my God, my child is," you know. <laughs> and so the impact that I had on this particular generation, I didn't realize, quite honestly, until we brought it back. And I went out just now. I we just stopped it when COVID started. But I did an 18-month, 70-city tour, and it was for moms and dads and kids. But basically, a bunch of 40-year-old people would come dressed in Double Dare t-shirts <laughs> just wanting to relive their childhood. Yeah, And it was just crazy to me. It was so much fun. So
0: was that to promote the new manifestation yes. of Double Dare? Yes. And are you involved in that as an EP or anything? I'm yeah. EP. Oh, and, good.
2: Um, it was so funny. You know, I had been driving Nickelodeon crazy for years to bring it back. And they said, no, 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 no. So I get a phone call one day saying, your persistence has paid off. <laughs> We're going to bring it back. But you're not the host.
1: The original guy that auditioned.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, and I said, well, who's going to host it? And they said, well, we hired, hired an in- influencer. And I said, excuse me, I'm a 68-year-old Jewish man. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> so they said, well, look it up. And, you know, here was this lovely lady, Liza Koshy, who was all of 22 years old. And she was the host. I was the EP. And I was I was the announcer. I became oh. Harvey, the guy who used to announce for me. Right. And then she'd bring me out to do physical challenges and things like that. And, you know, it was just fun to come back and, and play television. And it was the first job I ever had my entire career because back when I was When I started Double Dare, I was getting paid 500 bucks an episode, which I thought was a fortune back in the day. So I didn't know what to expect. You know, fast forward the tape. And the first offer was the most ridiculous offer in my life because I didn't have to renegotiate. It was like, really? You're paying people (laughs) this much dough now? Holy (laughs) mac!
0: I'm going to go back to the beginning because you're from Indianapolis. Yes. That's a great growing ground for hosts. Back there. Were you in town when Letterman... Was Letterman still on TV when you were there?
2: Um, I was working at a radio station in Elwood, Indiana, WBMP-FM, doing weekends 6 to 11, playing uh, 101 Strings and Monavani. And um, I was only 15, and the guy <laughs> oh, wow. who drove me up lost his job, and so I had to quit. Dave took my place.
1: Wow. wow. Yeah.
2: And then Dave was doing a show called Clover Power, which was for 4-H, like at 1 o'clock in the morning on the weekends. <laughs> and... Um, was it he was t- funny. Was he 15, too? Uh, no, he was... Well, Dave's four years older than me. Okay. But uh, Dave Garrison, the guy I mentioned earlier, who was a ventriloquist, was the Variety act on once, and, and he got done doing his act with Dudley, and so Dave and Dudley were there, and Dave walks over to him. Keep in mind, it's one o'clock in the morning, Clover Power, WLWI in Indianapolis, <laughs> and Letterman says... So, Dave and Dudley, which one of you guys does the laundry? I mean, <laughs> a Letterman's sense of humor was the same back then yeah. a- as it is now. And so, I, yeah. And so when Dave became a uh, stand-up out here, I was working on the Mac Davis show doing oh, warm-ups. And wow. uh, we had a writer, Terry Hart, and he said, I'm going to bring somebody to the studio today who I think you know. And it was it was Dave. And so Dave and I used to play racquetball together. And uh, then when the strike started at the Comedy Store, that was a whole other issue. So, yeah, I've known Dave. God knows how many years, you know. So
0: you did. You were a DJ and a magician to start. That was your starting to show business. Yep. So how did, the, how did the transition to stand-up comedy start?
2: I always wanted to do stand-up. I went to a school called Graham Junior College in Boston. And it was a school for a bunch of misfits. We didn't really want to go to school. Um, the school had two color studios, a black and white studio, a radio station. It was insane. And so I got into this school. And I meet a guy by the name of Bert Dubrow, who became the exec producer of Sally Jesse Raphael and Bert uh, and uh, Jerry Springer. I met a guy by the name of Paul Fusco, who created Alf. Uh, Andy Kaufman went to our school, so it was an amazing uh, place uh, to learn. And I was in my dorm one night watching TV, and I turned on the Tonight Show, I would watch all the time and this young comedian by the name of Alan Bursky. Paul. Oh, yeah. 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 And yeah. I said, well, Jesus, he's 18 years old. If he can do it, I can do it. And so my mission was to get the hell out of Boston, move to L.A., and become a stand-up comedian. Mm. Wow. And so I was
0: at Mitzi's memorial at the comedy I store, was as well. And uh, Were you there? I was there. Oh, my gosh. And Alan spoke, and he was one of the funniest he guys was. there.
2: Alan's still funny, believe me.
0: really very funny.
2: It was weird to go to that, though. I didn't recognize half the people because no. I hadn't seen him in so no. long. But, um, you know... Uh, I, I just wanted to get on, and I was working at the Magic Castle. I was doing 28 shows a week uh, back then for 145 bucks. but I didn't have enough stage experience, and so I wanted to get really good. So in 73, I became a regular at the, con- or at the uh, Magic Castle, and I auditioned in the summer of 76 for Mitzi and actually became a regular the first time I auditioned. Oh, one wow. Of the, one of the rare ones. Tell, so us, I tell us a joke students. from that act. Oh, uh, geez, something I can use here. Uh, let's see. I, I can this. I'm a Jew from Indiana. Uh, we do exist. Uh, I belong to an unusual congregation back there, B'nai Hoosier. Uh, my bar mitzvah was at the Moose Hall in Indianapolis. I mean, that was kind of my act. I said, uh, you remember those—what uh, yeah, I mean, was the thing? You, you heard about those uh, lacars?" Worst Thing about him, the Brakes. you know. I mean, it's just, I was David Brenner sideways, you know, but for whatever it was worth, it worked, yeah. And I used to open this is funny, I used to open for Gallagher at the laugh stop, okay. Oh. And
0: so, I'm backstage, you're one so night. diametrically opposed to Gallagher's. Oh my ad.
2: god! So, Gallagher comes up to me, can I swear on this show? I don't sure, know? Okay. sure. So, Gallagher comes up to me and he goes. Summers, you're an asshole. And I said, "Excuse me, Leo. Why is that?" And he goes, "Cause you walk walking out there with a deck of cards, and uh, and you're a, you're a prop act." I said, "Well, you're the biggest prop act. Other. What are you talking <laughs> about?" Like saying, but you don't understand milk. that. Uh, how much are they paying you to open for me? I said, "150 bucks." He goes, "You know, if you were a comic, you'd get 300." So I didn't realize because I was cutting ropes and saying, "Pick a card," they were paying me half because I was a novelty act. Wow. So I started oh, wow. to wean. The magic out and start doing stand up, and all of a sudden my pay went up. And I so, never heard that. Yeah, that's
0: very interesting. Gallagher
2: taught me that, and so yeah, all of a sudden I wasn't, you know, uh, one of the dancing bears from the Ed Sullivan show, I was like a stand up. <laughs> and so, the the worst job I ever had, I got called to open for the Bay City Rollers at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium oh in my Santa Monica. That sounds like a taste of heaven. Well, it? you know what it was, they were supposed to be the next Beatles, oh, yeah, sure. so um. Everybody told me not to do it. He said, The guy said uh, it was Wolf Rispiller Concerts, and he said, you've got to do 12 minutes, okay? And he said, if you get off that stage 30 seconds before, I'm not going to pay you, okay? It was a $500 job. I needed the money. Uh, David Copperfield, who hadn't really exploded at the time, was doing magic, and a friend of mine, and I called David, and he had just opened for them in New York. And he (laughs) kind of worked because he (laughs) he did not uh, talk. He just did magic, and he did illusions. So they said, "Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the comedy of Mark Summers." And all these thirteen-year-old girls are yelling, "Get the f off the stage!" Oh yeah, yeah. Oh god. And you god. know, I, 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 Jim uh, Rissmiller, who was off to the corner, said, "I will hold up fingers as to how much time you have left, okay, and how much time you've done." And I was out there with the flop sweat and trying to get the attention. And I looked over to Jim, and he went, "I thought I'd been there for an hour and a half. I had only done oh, two minutes." Wow. And. <laughs> I I did the full 12 minutes and he put his arm around me as I walked off stage. And he said, I have a compliment for you. And I said, what's that? He said, you're the first act across the country that didn't get anything thrown at them. So I said, well, thank you. That's fantastic. So, uh, you know, you learn, obviously, because you.
0: Steve Martin's guy in one of his books has great descriptions of the hideous nature of opening for rock acts. Of course. And that was his worst experience in life. But I will tell you that I, you did show warm up and you were very good at it. Thank you. And that teaches you momentum. And no matter what's happening, don't stop. You can't. So our mutual friend, Jimmy Brogan, used to do the warm-up for Cheers. He was the best. And he had laryngitis. And he called me the day before. They taped on Friday at Paramount. He said, would you fill in for me tomorrow? Oh my! You look said, oh, enough my. like me. Oh, yeah. Right. right. <laughs> we were mistaken for one another. And now two Presbyterian ministers from the Midwest. And we go up on stage together. But – uh he was the ma- He's the master of oh, improvising. The with the- and, and, uh, and I said, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to warm the audience up for cheers. That's a, that's a notch in my saddle. It is the worst stand up experience I've ever had. And the longest lasting, it took five hours because they were a film show. Mm-hmm. They had to change the film canisters every 10 minutes. And the first three rows are family and friends who have been there for every episode. And First of all, what you have to understand is you're never going to be as funny as the show. I, I, well, you can't be. You're not no, allowed to be. No, you're not allowed to be. <laughs> and it's not about you and your brilliant stand-up. It's keeping the energy alive. And I, I've i never worked that hard, and I never want to do it again. But it's I brutal. Have, I have such respect for those of you, you and Mark Sweet and a couple of those guys that have made careers out of doing it brilliantly, Oh,
2: I don't know how you do it. Yeah, Sweet so started off as a magician as well. Yeah. That was his career. Uh, and then he got in. He's one of the highest paid warm-up guys out there from what I understand now. I was um, a page at CBS, and oh. I was uh, working on Mary Tyler Moore and Newhart. Oh, and, wow. Uh, Lorenzo Music was the exec producer, yeah. played Carlton in The Doorman eventually. But he did the best warm-up I'd ever seen in my life. And I thought, well, I, I didn't even know what that job was. I could do that. So one day I knocked on his door. I said, hi, my name is Mark. Um, someday if you can't do the warm-ups— Can I fill in? He goes, you ever done it before? And I went, sure. And I lied and mentioned shows that, of course, I had never done. (laughs) So a week later, the phone rings, and it was Lorenzo. And he said, we're doing a show called Doc with uh, Barnard Hughes. Yes. And um, can you fill in for me? Yeah, sure. Well, now I'm pooping my pants (laughs) because I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I brought magic tricks, and I wrote stuff and whatever. And I went out there, and somehow, to this day, I don't know, I killed and running down the stairs when I was done that night was Grant Tinker, the man who owned oh, wow. the company. And he's put his arms around me and said, that might be the best thing I've ever seen. Oh okay? my goodness. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, I've seen Lorenzo music for the last umpteen <laughs> weeks. Nobody's better than him. And he goes, no, no, you killed it. So that opened up doors for me. Wow. Um, I tried to be a writer on the Mac Davis show when uh, Danny Simon, Neil's brother was yeah. the head writer mm-hmm. and I didn't get the job. And I said, well, Who's doing the warm-up? Because I don't know. You want to do it? So I said, yes. So I started doing warm-ups on Mac Davis. The exec producers were Smith Hemian and uh, Steve Binder. They went on to do Shields and Yarnell and a million other shows. So whenever they needed a warm-up guy, they'd call me. Right. So that opened up the doors. I was doing um, extra work on soap. And a dear friend of mine, Howie, he originally was Howie Itzkowitz, now Howie Stevens, was doing the warm-up. But I didn't think Howie was having a particularly good time doing it. So... In between season one and season two, I made a cold call to Paul Witt, the exec producer, and I said, hi, my name is Mark Summers, and uh, I've been an extra on your show. Um, I'm just wondering, are you guys thinking of making a change on the warm-up guy? He says, (laughs) well, what brought that up? And I said, well, I've been there, and I know how he's a friend, but he seems to have a tough time. He goes, you know what? We're doing a dress rehearsal this weekend. Why don't you come in and do it? If we'd like you, you got the rest of the season. If not, see ya. Well, I did it that night, and for the next three years, I did the warm-ups on soap. And- Next to me was Barney Miller. Dave Letterman was doing the warm up on Barney Miller. Oh, uh, and to the right of me was Bosom Buddies. Bob Saget was doing the warm up <laughs> on Oh, that. my. So, I mean, so many of us got started doing that job.
0: It, it, it will give you calluses. Oh, my. God. It, it'll give your stand up calluses. What's doing the trick
1: to it? Is, it? is it crowd work?
2: I think it's uh, getting them to like you up front. Because, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, at some point you run out of material and you show pictures of your kids out of your wallet. You know? <laughs> the hardest show I ever did was Alice, because um, it was basically old people who would fall asleep in the audience. And Linda was lovely, and the whole group, uh, Vic Tabak, nicest human in the world, But uh, Madeline Davis and and Bob Carroll Jr. were the exec Mm -hmm. producers of that show and the writers who happened to have also done I Love Lucy. Mm -hmm. And with all due respect to them, they used to basically recycle I Love Lucy scripts to Linda, and that's what they did. Uh And there was nothing, in my opinion, particularly funny about that program. And so you have old people with not a lot of jokes. All they waited for every week was, kiss my grits. Mm -hmm. And after they did kiss my grits, they'd laugh, applaud. And that was it. And they fall asleep. And they fall asleep. Yeah. And so that. And I did that show for eight years. Wow. Guess who I replaced on that one? I can't. Gary Shanling. Gary Shanling. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: So what do you think that? See all these great people did warm up. How do you think it like? It strengthened them.
2: Um, it, it, I guess it gives you the confidence to mm-hmm. stand up in front of an audience. Often with no material, and Brogan will tell you this, Brogan was the best at where you're from. Mm -hmm. And he would take where you're from for 25 minutes Mm -hmm. about your city, your town, your family, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where you're going for dinner, all that kind of stuff. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to interact with strangers who are basically, other than the first three rows, from out of town. And you have to explain to them how this whole thing works. Because they they go and turn on their TV, they watch All in the Family for 30 minutes, and they they don't realize it took three and a half hours to do that. And now
0: it's completely different. The last couple of years that Jay did the Tonight Show, Mm -hmm. they had a guy, and it was all about like EDM music and t-shirt cannons and all that kind of stuff. There were no jokes. It was was like, uh, you know, it was just an energy thing. It was no, they don't. But that's what Jay wanted yes yeah it's not what i'll others. do the jokes yeah yeah
1: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. no really yeah, true. yeah it's just kind of keeping people charged when they'd yeah. be falling asleep yeah yeah and they and like so what you don't know if you've never been to hollywood and you've never gone to a, a, a the recording of a tv show is that it takes several hours and that the warm-up guy could be saying hey a funny story about my dad that happened last <laughs> month and all of a sudden they're ready to shoot again oh yeah and you, you to have stop. to stop yeah and then when you come back, you have to decide, do I continue that story or do I go with some new energy? It's it's You're constantly being interrupted. And you have to have the ability to get up in front of people and in a moment for two minutes or for half an hour and explain to them what the holdup is and and be entertaining. It's it's a lot.
2: I was doing a pilot with B. Arthur after a Golden Girls. Oh, my. And um, I was out on stage for maybe 20, 25 minutes. The exec producer, could you come here for a second? said. Uh, B uh, has a message for you. Uh, What's that? Uh, Shut up. Don't talk. We'll pay you. Sit over on this chair. When the show's over with, we'll we'll pay you. But her feeling is, you're funnier than the script. Don't say another word. So there was silence between the acts because that's what B wanted. It was amazing.
1: And how did that go? Uh, not particularly well. It shouldn't get picked up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I got to be a page on Sonny and Share, and I did the last episode of Sonny really? and Share. I was on Carol Burnett. I was in All in the Family. I did the first episode of Good Times. Think about this. It was 1974. And Mr. Lear felt that only black people should be in the audience. He thought it was only a black show. So- the rehearsals normally do an afternoon dress rehearsal, mm-hmm. and then the audience goes away, and they do changes, and then you do the air. Well, they were running way behind, and we had an entire group of very nice people that they brought in. Um, and I had to go out and tell them after standing out in the heat for two and a half hours that we weren't going to be doing the show. Ooh. So Mr. Lear says, oh, excuse me, can I talk to you? Yeah. And he gave me a wad of money, and he said, give them each $20. Tell them to go over to the farmer's market. Tell them to have dinner. And then tell them to come back. And I said, Mr. Lear, with all due respect, if I start handing $20 bills to the audience, they're going to leave and they ain't ever coming back. (laughs) And he said, do you really think that? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And so sure enough, about only half of them returned, (laughs) enough to be in there. We did the show, and they realized after shooting the first one, it wasn't a black show. It was a show. Mm -hmm. And you didn't need to have black people in the audience. You needed to have just people in the Mm -hmm. audience. So that was an interesting time to be working over there. And you know, people just didn't know you know, what, what was going on at the time.
1: Yeah. Now, after my stint as intern on Our Magazine, I got a job as a page at Metro Tape.
2: Oh, my. So I worked
1: on all the Norman Lear sitcoms. You did. They moved yeah. over there. Yep. Oh, my
2: God. Yeah. I was over there. Uh, the very first uh, real job I had in town was writing Truth or Consequences. The last year, Bob Barker hosted it. Awesome. And we shot it over there. And I thought I had died to go and gone to heaven because I used to run home from nursery school and watch Bob host Truth or Consequences when it was on NBC, and he was my idol. And the fact that I was going to get a chance to work and meet with this guy was like the most amazing thing in my life.
1: Wow! Wow! So, what was he like?
2: I can't tell you. He uh, <laughs> we we haven't talked in years. <laughs> uh, he he, uh, it's all about him. Tough yeah. cooking. Yeah, yeah. He uh, on his uh. Uh, Sleeves, he has monogram WGMC on his... uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, So he had the uh, dressing room over at the Carol Burnett Studio 33, and then they did uh, Price over there when Carol wasn't shooting. And he had a sign, WGMC World's Greatest MC. Well, Bob Eubanks was shooting a pilot over 33 one year, and Bob, just for the heck of it, took the WGMC sign and hit it. And Bob gets to the studio and refused to go on Until they found that sign. And so CBS was scattering. And they finally got a hold of Eubanks at home and said, what in the hell did you do with that WGMC sign? He said, I hid it under the couch. And they went under there, put on. Bob went out and said, you know, here's your next item up for bids. But let's just say his ego wouldn't fit in the room. Wow. wow. And I could tell you a lot more than that. How do you get to be that guy? Um, I think, you know.
0: Being kowtowed, too, for 30, 40 years. I think enough people
2: kiss your ass and you start to believe it. And, uh, you know, there was a time, the story goes, that um, TV Guide wanted to do uh, a cover with Barker and Jack Berry and a lot of the guys, uh, G- Gene Rayburn. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Barker said, uh, you can do a cover with me, but I- I'm, not, I'm not doing a cover with those guys. Oh, my so, gosh. you know, um, he became full of himself.
1: Yeah, but I say, I think that fame just exacerbates your already personality.
2: Oh, uh, Probably. But he used to say this thing, you know, Bob never got married. And his opening line was, uh, Dorothy Joe's wife, uh, Dorothy Joe and I have something in common. She's in love with me and so am I. And I think that was that was the truth, you know?
0: So how did you make the transition to the lifestyle shows like uh, Home on AMC or ABC, Our House on Lifetime, the Food Network shows? Um, did you have, what was that? Fretz, int- everything
2: that happened in my career has been a mistake. <laughs> um, so I had done some segments for the Home Show on ABC. I would. I was teaching them how to do magic and just silly stuff, filler stuff. And so Howie Stevens was a regular on the home show. And uh, they were having a contest, and they had to give somebody $50,000 as the grand prize in West Virginia. Well, they had told Howie it was on June 4th. Well, something got changed, and they had to move it to June 3rd or something. And Howie said, well, I've already made plans to go to Europe. So I'm not changing them. And they said, no, no, you have to change them because you have to go to West Virginia. And he goes, no, you didn't hear me. I'm not, I'm not changing them. I'm going to Europe. So uh, Jim Woody, who was the uh, executive charge of production at Home Show Club, he goes, hey, Summers, I need you to do this thing for me. What's that? I need you to go to West Virginia, give this woman 50 grand, and then fly home. Now, keep in mind, you're just filling in for Howie. Um, it's a one-time offer. Don't call me and say you want to do more of these. I said, OK, fine. So I flew, did the award. We're live. And the lady said to me, I said, here's a $50,000 check. And she goes, you know, I always wanted to meet Gary Collins because he's so handsome. <laughs> and I said, well, you know what, Gary? I'm flying back this afternoon. Maybe I should fly back with her and you should give her the money. And uh, Woody Frazier, who was exec producer, said in my ear, nice going, Mark. So I flew back. With this woman, the next day, I was on with her. Gary gave her the check. They thought that was so good. They fired Howie, and I became a regular for the next three You years. just keep you're grabbing Howie's gigs. You've a lot of gigs. people out of work, uh, I, you I, really But have. you know what? It wasn't my choice. <laughs> right. I just kind of did things. So <laughs>
1: you're plucky. That's one through line. I like that word. That's a thread. You are plucky. You go for
2: it. I go for it every time. I, yeah. I was never scared. And, um, you know, look, I'm still friends with all these guys. Yeah. But um, I just, I think on my feet. And it somehow has worked. And so Woody then created a show for me called uh, What Would You Do that we did at Nickelodeon. And uh, Woody and I had a company together. We brought back a Wild and Crazy Kids for Nickelodeon um, and, and did many things together. And so I've been able to cross back and forth as a producer and his talent. And it's just been fun. I
0: think Double Dare was the first child-focused game show that was successful.
2: Am I right? Probably right. I grew up with a show uh, Video Village that became Kidio Village and then Shenanigans, uh, but it didn't have the impact that, that double. No, it. it wasn't like interactive type. No, thing. no. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, thank you. I think uh, we kind of put Nickelodeon on the map and it put me on the map at the same time. And now you
1: have Mark Summers Productions. Yeah. So how going. did that come into fruition?
2: Um, I got... I, <laughs> I was doing a home show piece uh, at the Toy Show in New York and uh, I was interviewing this guy who had a company called Tiger Toys. He had a a toy called 2XL. It was a robot. And when I got done off the air, he goes, I have this robot. Do you think we can turn it into a TV show? So I came up with a show um, called Pick Your Brain. And 2XL was the star of the show. And uh, Tiger Toys financed my company. And I needed an entity to get started. So Roger was the one who helped me start Mark Summers Productions. And then we just started producing television shows. And we did Dinner Impossible and Restaurant Impossible and a bunch of other things along the way.
1: So do you find a lot of the fans that were with you for Double Dare as children are now with you for all these types of shows? That's the cool
2: thing. They grew up yeah. with me, yeah. you know, and uh, I'm now on like the third generation because now their kids are watching me. And uh, it's, it's just been an amazing career. Uh, you know, I, I've had so much fun. I always say I've never worked a day in my life. Because I just got to play TV all the time. And I'm sure you feel the same way.
0: I think that's your appeal. I think you look like you're having a great time. As I say, you don't talk down to people. You have a great warmth on television. And so that's why you've been able to host across a bunch of different types of platforms.
2: Yeah, I did a show called History IQ at the History Channel. I love that show. Thank you. Kids probably learn
0: more out of that show than they would out of a book in an 11th grade history class. It was
2: hard. It was really hard. We did that for two years. That was fun. Yeah, I've done sort of a potpourri of crazy shows. Uh, I've hosted over 25 programs. I used to host the Rose Parade for Fox. I mean, it's been fun. Uh, you know, the answer is always yes. Somebody calls and says, do you want to? And before they even say what it is, they go, yeah, I'll do that, you know.
0: So what are you doing right now? Anything? You said that things toned down with the pandemic. Yeah,
2: pandemic sort of brought everything to a screeching halt. Um, a couple of years ago, I did. Uh, I have a partner in Shive. Uh, we produce shows together. We did a um, shark special for uh, Shark Week for Discovery a couple of years ago in Cuba. And we got together and just did a show called uh, The Last Unknown. Uh, we went to the Aleutian Islands to a couple of islands that supposedly had not been inhabited in hundreds or thousands of years. And once we got there, we found Coke uh, cans. Or uh, well, anything. Starbucks. No, we, we found some down planes from World War II and what? some tunnels from the Japanese. And it became sort of a different show in in many aspects. We were going to look at the flora and the fauna, but the things that we discovered sort of gave it a left turn. And it's on Discovery Plus. We have been, uh, we went on the air I think March sixteenth, and we have uh, trended every day since then. So,
1: Mark, when you get there, where do you sleep and go oh, to the bathroom? On
2: boats. Uh, really? Yeah, it's it's pretty dangerous out there. Uh, just to get permission uh, to go out and do these things is is not that easy. We own the islands. The United States does, but they pretty much don't allow anybody on them. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, but that was fun going to Cuba and shooting there was fun. Um, you know, it, it's just—it's just all amazing. The fact that people actually pay you to do this stuff. Yeah. You know? So, what did you do? You did uh, a, a page at, uh, yeah. at at Metro, and then where'd you go from there?
1: Uh, I got hired at Metro on a show called PM Magazine. Oh yeah.
2: Who we were the hosts at the time?
1: So we had David Sisson uh-huh. and uh, David, and uh, it'll it? it'll come back to me. Yeah. Yeah. And. That led to, we we had a different disc jockeys hosting PM Magazine all summer long. Really? Because Cynthia Tivers was my boss, and she had this idea that if you had different disc jockeys hosting, because David went back east, and Sandy, Sandy Newton. Oh, my God. Yeah.
2: I and used to work with her an hour. Yeah, I love her. her dad. She's a doll. Her yeah. dad started all the Group W stuff.
1: Oh, yeah? Yeah. He was She's creator. talented. Oh, She's yeah. good. So David decided to go back and do religious broadcasting. In Virginia. really, And so C- Cynthia said, well, let's have a different disc jockey every week and then we'll get the cross promotion. Great idea. So she had one of them she had on was Rick Dees. And I was told I didn't have an FM radio in my car, but I was told Rick, Rick Dees is funny. I was wanted to write comedy. So I wanted to study him, but he was on vacation the week before he did this. So I never really got a chance to hear him, but I just wrote scripts that were funny to the best of my ability. And he liked that. And he hired me to write the weekly top 40 countdown. Oh my God. And that led to me and some disc jockeys at KISS FM forming a company called Premier Radio, which is now a
2: division of iHeart. Yeah. So I that was that. my trajectory. Congratulations. That's it's, way cool. Yeah, I got launched. You really did. It was And Deez is what, in Kentucky now on a ranch? I guess. Is that what yeah, I heard? is
0: an acre ranch down there and he grows hemp and cattle. Does so he really he, grow hemp? He's a very, Yeah, he's a very entrepreneurial dude. Yeah.
2: But, you know, he was responsible uh, for the beginning of HGTV. Did you oh, was that? he? Yes, I did know yeah. that.
0: I did know He's that. A break, but break guy. she, she as a as a comedy person, you will appreciate what she did. She and her her partners came up with this great idea, which was. Why don't we have a comedy writing service for small and medium market DJs that can't afford their own writers? Good idea. And then once or twice a week, we'll fax some new jokes. And the next thing you know, they got 500 radio stations on their thing. And that's what blossomed the company. Wow.
2: But what a great idea, right? There was a kid I uh, used to do voices on uh, D's, who was my voice of 2XL. And I can't think of his name right now. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of... James Taylor? <laughs> no. James... Uh, t- James uh, Arnold t- Taylor. James Arnold really? Taylor. Really? Yeah.
1: He's now a, a top voiceover guy.
2: It's amazing. Uh, all these young comics uh, and voiceover guys would make a lot of money doing those uh, right. voices. Right. We and- used
1: Jeff Altman and Ronnie Schell, yeah. which Rick had used. Yep. And we just syndicated them to the- read write the scripts and the disc jockey would have their line. And then, you know, Jeff or, yeah, as Carl, the engineer, would have his line. and Or Ronnie. Ronnie Shell was the talent booking agent, Bernie Shelley. Ronnie. And his secretary, Seal. And Ronnie did both voices. Wow. And then the disc jockey got to interact. So it made the disc jockey the star of the bit rather than... Casey Kasem, which replaces an air shift, our, our philosophy was let's enhance an air shift. Yeah. So absolutely. we started doing what we called the plane wrap countdown where they get to t- count down the top 40 records and they'd say, hey, we talked to Huey Lewis.
2: Press a button. Uh, Huey Lewis starts talking. What a great idea for small and uh, medium uh, markets. It makes, yeah, because it yeah. makes you look like you're a big time uh, station. Yeah. Did you ever do stand up with Ronnie Schell? Um, I I will tell you this Ronnie Shell
1: story. <laughs> <laughs> Ronnie Shell story is my favorite.
2: Yes. Um, I was working for Ralph Edwards. Uh, mostly as a writer Truth or Consequences Crosswits um, And uh, Ronnie was getting ready To do a uh, game show I believe it was called Talk About And uh, Ronnie With all due respect Very talented man Was not a particularly Good game show host Okay <laughs> yeah. And um, it was the day of And they realized That Ronnie was Not doing well Okay So R- Ralph Edwards A man I grew up watching On this He was such life, a nice man The sweetest man In his history, yeah. in the world, Came to me and said I need a favor And I said What's that He said I want to shoot a thirty-minute pilot with you as the host, okay. and I want Ronnie to sit down and watch you. Oh! <laughs> so I did the show, okay? And they had Ronnie make notes, and I went up to Mister Edwards afterwards, and I said, "With all due respect, Mister Edwards, if I'm teaching the guy to be the host, why don't you just hire me?" And he said, "Oh, I I, I couldn't do that to Ronnie. I couldn't possibly do that." So Ronnie did it, and uh, you know, the rest Failed is history. Display. So to speak. Yeah. yeah. Did you watch? Mike binders
0: uh, yes I did what would you think of uh, I I, I, I love the nostalgic part of it but I thought it was very dark
2: the first I two th- episodes were when you and I were there yes when they got into the Joe Rogan stuff, I, I, they lost me. Yeah, and I understood why they
0: did that. It was cross-promotional opportunity. They used all the big guys. They could They could showcase Letterman and Leno and Joe Rogan started appearing and Whitney and all these— Letterman? Yeah, the Letterman and all the current comics. I understood why Showtime probably insisted on that. But the whole comedy attitude, those people— people who stand up they focused on it was it seems so dark to me and it
2: wasn't that way no that's that, that's my whole point exactly you know we used to root when somebody got on the tonight show we would all sit there and watch them and, and applaud them and they made it seem like well you stole my joke and why is he on there instead of no, me and i don't remember that time
0: i, I, I think that what, what they were what they were trying to do was to uh uh, they were just trying to create controversy because it's, it's promotional. But I, I, I you're right. I, I remember watching so many guys do their first Tonight Show, like Louis Anderson. We were yeah. all gathered around the TV yeah. at the Improv. There was like 300 people in there watching Louis do I his first. I remember when Tonight Robin Show. did his first. No, they were very uh, supportive of other comics. But it, but it, just the, the the material. Yeah. It it wasn't as dark as it was portrayed there, and I just I felt. I felt a little I was a little melancholy about it at the end of the experience the
2: thing that made me happy was do you remember the doorman Harris Pete Harris Pete and I said if Harris Pete is not on this documentary then then it's no wrong worth watching. yeah and Harris Pete, sure enough there Harris he was.
0: Pete was a big hockey fan yes and his entire apartment was like a museum yes. of hockey memorabilia and he was the
2: funniest guy ever and you know what he's doing now
0: oh don't tell me
2: no Harris Pete is the happiest human I've ever met in my entire life he gave up stand-up, although he, he works Vegas like two weeks a year. He lives in Montana, basically doing odd jobs and working as an umpire on uh, minor league baseball games and uh, anything to do with hockey. And uh, I call him every now and then. Oh. And I've never met a man who's got such a lilt of joy in his voice.
0: Uh-huh. And he represents a type of person that I've met in stand-up. There are people who are so infinitely funny yes, and funnier than two-thirds of the stand-ups making a living at it. But for some reason, I don't know if it's because they're comfortable being the doorman or they never never walked up the two or three steps to the next level. Harris was always, in a conversation, was the funniest guy in the room. But he was the doorman at the comedy store for
2: 30 years. For years. I mean, look, we can sit there and look at Argus Hamilton. The man never left. You know, there's stories like that that you go, really? I mean, you know. But I talked to Binder about this once, and he said, I knew that the comedy store was a stepping stone. I didn't want to get stuck there. No. And he's gone on to do other things. He's had a great career. He's had a great career. But some people just when don't I know. got there, Argus was
0: going to take Johnny Carson's
2: place. Everybody that, thought that. That was because he discussion. was uh, the Mort Saul of yeah, our generation. Yeah,
0: Great, great topical joke. Right oh yeah. On. But,
2: but uh, it was a, it was a different time. And, you know, keep in mind, when I used to stand in line on Monday nights, there were only 50 people. Now there's 550 people because everybody thinks they're funny, and most people aren't. Other than Sebastian Maniscalco, I can't think of many people who make me laugh right
0: now. No, that's that's a good point.
2: Also... You were here uh,
0: for the era of I'm Dying Up Here and probably read that book. I knew him. I loved that book.
2: Yes, I did I thought
0: the book was a really interesting little microcosm of stand-up and the strike and all that. But then the show that Jim Carrey produced was nothing like it. It was very dark.
2: It it wasn't It's hard to write a show about stand-ups. Well, Uh, a guy who – ultimately killed himself by jumping off yeah, of the ceiling yeah, or a yeah. roof of a hotel next door mm-hmm. and the joke was he tried to dive into the ceiling where the uh room where the uh, you know stage was and he couldn't even do that right um <laughs> uh, you know steve was a troubled boy and, and yeah. uh, a sweet guy and actually funny but uh you know that strike destroyed a lot of people and to this day there are comics who crossed the line and other comics who didn't who if and you mention animosity yes you know uh if you mention a name to my friend ellis levinson who didn't cross the line i remember and If ellis. you mention certain comics who did ellis still gets the hair on the back of his neck to stand up he gets angry yeah mm-hmm. well that was a really contentious time it, it was like
0: politics now i mean the rumor that ollie joe prater is the guy that lit the improv on fire yes. to make himself
2: look good for me yes. oh my god well and and you know well, yeah i know think about that whole thing i know um it, it, it was an odd time, needless to say. And I had just become a regular when the strike happened. And so I got a phone call from Letterman saying, we're having a meeting. You need to come to my house and get together. Well, I said, what's it about? He said, we're thinking of striking. And I went, oh, Jesus. So I didn't show up. And about two days later, the phone rang, and it was Dave. And he said, you're either with us or against us. Wow. What are you doing? Well, Dave already had a career. Jay had a yeah, career. All those yeah, guys had yeah. a career. I didn't. And I was terrified, yeah. but my choice was to strike. Yeah. Um, and my fear was, you know, is Mitzi gonna retaliate? Will I ever, and remember, Shandling crossed the line and he said, look, I don't care about this strike, I need to work, and, and went on, and it helped build his career, because yeah. while the rest of us were carrying signs that says, no money, no funny, he <laughs> yeah. was up there getting experience. Yeah. Know?
1: It's fascinating how the fallout from that strike is still affecting Absolutely. us. Absolutely. It's, in it's just informed so many people's view of themselves in the world.
0: We had Tom Dreesen on here and it was great. He's written some great books about Tom it. is amazing. I used yeah. to write for Tom. Yeah. yeah. He's a, he's a great guy, uh, but there are so many misconceptions about, everybody's relationship in that strike. I know. I mean, I read the book and I and I kept asking Tom questions and he goes, no, that's not what happened. And I thought,
1: "What? Well, that was in the book. Yeah. What? And Elaine said the same thing. Yeah, Elaine Boozler yeah. said the same thing. And really? she was
0: totally mi- misrepresented in Interesting. that book. And that guy was a newspaper writer.
2: Yeah. So I don't know. You know how I became a regular at the Improv? How? No. I could not get Bud to put me on ever, okay? He just wouldn't put me on. So I'm watching the 11 o'clock news, see that there's a fire at the Improv. I get up the next morning at seven o'clock and drive to the improv. And there's Bud, and he goes, "What the hell are you doing here?" I said, "Got to clean this place up." He goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, you got to open again. Let's let's start cleaning up." Here's the thing I found fascinating: I was the only comic who showed up wow. out of all the people who worked that club. I who didn't work there. Yeah. So for the next three weeks, I worked with Bud and Dottie Archibald's husband. Okay. Yeah. Oh my. And we clean that place up. And I became a regular, started emceeing on weekends. And his way of thanking me was, I'm going to put you on now.
1: That's that's a really important story. That's
2: really interesting. That's what I did. I mean, I didn't care how he did it. I was going to... Become a regular. Now, the improv was the hardest room to me in town. Yeah. Mm.
0: I never had a killer set in there the whole never. 10 years I worked there.
2: Where the laugh stop, you could always score. Yeah. And the comedy store was, you know, 60-40. Yeah. I-, I think I bombed every time I was there. I think the it was
0: because it was a heavily uh, weighted show business audience in there. And it was really a tough call. A New
2: York crowd. And it was like cavernous.
0: Yeah.
1: It was people came. They come there to schmooze. Yeah.
2: Nobody really You know, to. even
1: when they go into the showroom, they're not really there.
2: I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. But, uh, you know, all that experience uh, paid off because the more you got on stage, the more you got in front of a crowd, the more, even if it was for six or eight people, you
0: did it. I I Mm -hmm. learned a great lesson about that exact topic. Uh, um, They they would do their open mics, the improv, on Sunday nights where Bruce Smirnoff would have this jar and everybody would write their name on there and they'd call the numbers out and and invariably I'd get on at like 10 after one in the morning. But one night, Leno was getting ready to do a Tonight Show shot or something, and they let him go up. And the only people that were in the room were open micers. There were like 10 of us and no audience. And Leno went up there. Did his act? Did his act like it was the Roman Coliseum, <laughs> and I learned, you know what? He just he has the amazing ability just to to focus on the job at yeah. hand, and and our response wasn't even important to him. I think he just wanted to vocalize his jokes mm-hmm. and practice the run. And I thought, wow, it took it's extreme discipline.
2: But I learned he's a, a pro. Lot of, yeah. yeah, nobody works harder than Jay Leno. Yeah. You know, right. he, he's. It was interesting. Um, I always found him funny as hell in a club. Mm-hmm. And if you'd get at the to the store early, this is seventy six four years before you, out in front, it was always be Dave and Jay talking. Yeah. and Dave would always say, where'd you come up with that? You know, he used to think that Jay was the funniest guy in the world. And then when you realize what happened over the years between the tonight show and, Oh yeah. You know, all that well, they stuff. were the
0: closest friends and, and, and that's really what called Jay to national attention yes. was his interaction with Dave on Dave's show. Yeah. They What's were, your beef? they were perfect
2: together. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, it was uh, it was an amazing time. So, um, you know, everything changes. And, uh, I think the, the sense of comedy and the way you become successful today is different. You can become a YouTube star. Uh, you can do your own channel. Um, and somehow that magically works with people. And there are some people, Jay Jay says that all the people who are doing podcasts are jerking themselves off, which just makes me laugh. Um, uh, you know, because a lot of comics can't do anything else. And they can't get on. So they became uh, podcast guys. Um, That's but, why we have the desk. Well, you know what? But here's the difference. You're broadcasters. And that term isn't used anymore. No. To me, Dave was the last real broadcaster on television. And to have that experience, you know, I I used to think Hugh Downs used to host the Today Show. Mm -hmm. And they'd walk down the hall and he would host Concentration. And there was a period of time where, as a broadcaster, you were expected to be able to do news, sports, entertainment. But you're not allowed to do that anymore. You're putting into a little box and you're only X or Y. You're not allowed to cross over. I was filling in once Gary Collins was on vacation and I was doing uh, the hosting of the uh, home show on ABC. And I had never really hosted a live network show, talk show. So the night before, they turned over all the material and all the books, and I crammed everything into my head. And apparently, I didn't let the guests talk. I just was trying to show everybody how smart I was. (laughs) And ABC, after the show, wanted to fire me and said, this guy sucks. We're not allowing him to be on tomorrow. And Woody, much thankful, cleared a desk and said, he's my guy. I'm sticking with him. Okay. Get out of my office now. So Woody brings me in the office. He goes, look, Summers, they want you fired. Okay. You can't do tomorrow what you did today. If you do, I can't help you. Mm -hmm. So I went home, studied the material for Tuesday. We went live at eight o'clock in the morning. I'm standing on stage with the IFB in my ear, and uh, Denise Contis, who was the producer in the booth, said to me, Mark, did you read all the material last night? Uh-huh. Okay. Now just go out there, forget everything you read, and just have a conversation. Yeah. And that's what I did, and that was the day I became a host.
1: Oh, wow. Changed my See, life. See, but the ability to learn rather than to just object, you know, to what, what, what the opinion is. It, it's, it, the first reflex is you're wrong. I'm doing this correctly. And then you have to take a breath and say, okay, what are they saying to me that I can learn from?
2: Dick Block, who's my mentor, still around 95 years old, said, all TV shows are the same until the person says hello. If you like the way to say hello, you'll stick around, and if you don't, you won't. And that's Johnny Carson, okay? Think about all the people who've been successful. People love Johnny, okay? You know,
0: it's so funny that you mentioned that. I had this discussion with somebody like three days ago for a period of time. They don't do it all the time, but they play the old Carsons on Sirius XM radio. I listen— and then you realize the power and the talent of Carson. Oh, yeah. When you hear his voice and how he inflects and he's so comfortable in his own skin on camera, on camera. or on uh, audio. But I thought, wow, there he is right there. He, he, he it, was the best. It, yeah. It, uh, it, 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 it was soothing. And it's the same thing that you and Letterman brought to the game. It's that Midwestern uh, sensibility.
2: Dick Cavett. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have you ever had Bruce Smirnoff on this show? Not no. I haven't. Oh, oh to. you must. Yeah. This man has the greatest stories. You must bring him on and have him tell you the story where Johnny Carson got drunk and, and Bruce had to drive him home.
1: Oh, yeah. It's in his one-man oh, yeah, one yeah. It's man it's show. It's in his yeah. one-man show. Yeah, yeah I've, I've
0: heard about that. Oh, my
1: it's God. It's so good. <laughs> but Bruce has
2: more stories than Carter's have liver pills. I mean, yeah. I got to tell
0: you. Just from working at the improv, right? If, I mean, that's what stuff that happened by accident. By accident.
2: And he's in Florida now doing the condos and no, stuff like that.
0: No, I know. I... He's great. I, I, when, when I was trying to expand my stand-up business, uh, somebody uh, recommended that I do an audition for Bruce because he books the condos. Yes. And I had a particular one-person show that was about being old and everybody thought this would play well in the condos in Florida. So uh, I, uh, I called him up and I sent him a tape. And I knew Bruce from when he was running the open mics at the Improv. And he said, you know, I I just can't do it to you. I said, what? He said, you're just not ethnic enough.
2: That's hysterical. He said,
0: people down here, and he was being honest, and I'm so glad he did. He said, This is a I uh, probably eighty-five to ninety percent of the people you're gonna play to down here are transplanted New York people. Yeah. They love snarky, a little maybe a, a Yiddish joke at the end of the thing, and it's it's the cadence yep. of the New York the Jewish New Yorker. And uh, I was insulted for like 30 seconds, and then I talked to other comedians who have worked down there He said, No, he did you a giant favor because when you die down there, it's an indescribable death. So he saved. <laughs> Me for myself,
2: then. yeah. He, he's but he's a, had a great career booking acts, yes. He's the nicest guy in the world, yeah, and has had uh more stories. I mean, he's got the funniest stories, and I, I knew him for years. We started, we used to stand in line Monday nights mm-hmm. together. Yeah. It was uh Bruce Murnoff, me, and a guy by the name of Alan Prophet. Do you remember, Alan yes, Prophet? yes, Alan's real name was Alan Shabowski. And uh, I said, Where'd you come up with Prophet? He said, Well, there was uh Alan King, uh, <laughs> and I thought, Well, King, I'll be Prophet, you know, <laughs> <It's> hysterical. <laughs> we got to talk about your book because you did a lot of people
0: a lot of good service by writing this book. It's called Everything in Its Place, My Trials and Triumphs with Obsessive-Compulsive Disorder. First of all, what, what are the symptoms of Obsessive-Compulsive Disorder?
2: Well, they, they vary from person to person. And by the way, the rule book changes on a regular basis. Mine was neatness and orderliness. So uh, we had fringes on a rug, and I would have to straighten the fringes every day. Otherwise, I'd feel, you know, you have intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. If I don't do this, something bad will happen to right. me or my wife or my right, kids. Right, right. And so it drives you. you know, I This is something that's uh, passed down in families. My mother had it. My father had it. Both their parents had it. And so I was doing a live talk show, Biggers and Summers, on Lifetime. And we had uh, Dr. Eric Hollander on as a guest. And I had done the research the night before. And I thought, oh, my God, this is what I have. I've never been. I didn't know that it had a name. I just was sort of keeping this inside thinking I was crazy. And so I have to make a decision. Do I go on TV the next day and lie and pretend I don't have this or do I come out and and expose myself, which I did. And the next thing I know, the phone's ringing, you know, the Today Show and Oprah and People Magazine want to have this conversation about the guy who used to host the messiest show on TV had (laughs) (laughs) obsessive compulsive disorder. And so it it blew up and I was on Oprah and I was on the Today Show and on People Magazine and, and all this stuff. And so I was approached to write a book And out of all the things I've done in my life, it's probably the most important because people come up to me and say, I didn't know what I had until I saw you on these shows or until I read your book. And because of you, my life is better and it changed everything. And you go, you know, I've been on Oprah. I've been on Howard Stern. I've done The Tonight Show. Yeah, it's all irrelevant. The fact that I helped change this person's life meant more to me. And it still happens. Um, so you know, and so, do you, so how do you get out of the habitual
0: things? Is it like uh, is it behavioral stuff? Is it medication? medication well, it's about stroke?
2: serotonin not getting from point A to point B. Oh, okay. So, uh, I think the first thing you have to do. I've never done drugs and I don't drink much, but if you're an alcoholic or a drug at, drug addict, and I've known many, sadly, in the entertainment industry, until you're ready to get better, you're not going to. Mm-hmm. And I've done interventions with plenty of people to try and save them. And some of them jump on board the wagon about, I don't want to live this life anymore. And others choose not to. And so I had just been fed up. I, didn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I was a nervous wreck. And so Dr. Hollander became my doctor, uh, at the time put me on medication, and um, would go to sessions like you go to a psychiatrist. And then I went um, and did behavior therapy, which is basically retraining your brain to not want to do these things. Dateline caught wind of this thing. And they basically followed me for a year. And if you watch the first episode and it's online, um, my house, I lived up in Calabasas at the time, was a show place, but I didn't want anybody in it. I didn't want anybody to sit on the couch. I didn't want anybody to sit on a chair. I didn't want my kids to have friends over. I just wanted it to be perfect all the time. And so they followed me through the transition. And my graduation was for me to get up at seven o'clock in the morning and leave my house and not come back until they called me And when I did, I walked in, and they had turned my living room into a TV studio. And initially, my knees buckled because I thought, oh, my God, I'll never be able to get this place back to the way it was, which was perfect. But you know what? Uh, All the trading that I had and the medication and the behavior therapy uh, got me through. And so I never say that I'm 100% cured. I don't think you ever are. I always say I'm 82% cured. And yeah. There's a bit of it that still hangs out there, and depending on how stressed I get, uh, it pops back in.
1: Sure, it's it's a manageable condition. It's not. Well, something. I have
2: the
0: tools now. To sure. Know that. Do you and Howie Mandel do uh, support groups? I
2: talked to Howie the other day. Um, I did an intervention on Howie years ago. And Howie said to me, there's nothing wrong with me. Everybody else has the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just like I think you've done the
0: same thing with your book and everything, Howie made it okay to talk about that topic. He was the first major star that ever discussed and revealed having had that. uh,
2: He got a pass. I wasn't able to work for about a year and a half after I came out with it. Uh, Somehow Howie got away with it.
1: Because you went first.
2: Uh, Maybe, you know. Absolutely. So
0: you revealed your condition before he did? I did. Wow, I wasn't. Yeah. You I did, ran whatever.
1: interference. I Listen, did. and then it becomes a, a thing whether you're whether you're you know Caitlyn Jenner, you know it's like oh yeah you're you you know you're transitioning. Yeah. And, you know that first person has to run interference, but Chaz Bono did that for yeah. her, so. Um but I wanted to just say that I think we all have inklings of this. I think this is what superstition is about. I think this is what certain religious rituals are about. I think this is what it's about when kids are doing step on a crack break your mother's back. Absolutely. We all have an inkling towards these types of oh I have to touch this or wear this or you know a, if you go to, over to watch a a game at, at at your friend's house and the first time you appear the team loses, you know, you're disinvited. So like you have the power you know, <laughs> to determine which choose. So we all have to, yeah. I think, work on this.
2: And Howie works on a regular basis. You know, during this COVID thing, I've been going a little wacky myself. And uh, I called Howie the other day to commiserate about, you know, what are you doing right now? Are you seeing anybody? Are you on any medication? Because mm-hmm. we talk the same language. By the way, the nicest human being in the history of the world, Howie Mandel is the yeah. sweetest boy ever. You know, wow, I mean, that's awesome. Great,
0: worked his way into several areas of success. Think Very about much him. Like yourself.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's a great producer. Yeah. Um he he has a company that edits uh America's Got Talent. Um yeah. he he's an empire. He really yeah. is. Yeah. So uh great career. It it's fun to see these guys grow. And the fun part for me now is um after I uh you know had the old OCD thing and uh then I was in a car accident and broke every bone in my face. Whoa. And um I thought to myself, well, you know, how many more chances am I going to get? And I always wanted to perform on Broadway. That was my goal. Yeah. And so I met a guy who was a Broadway producer and uh, called him up and I said, look, I know I'm not going to get an opportunity on Broadway, um, but what can I do to like start doing theater? And he said, you know, I just bought a, a place in uh, Long Beach Island, New Jersey. Um, I don't know what shows we're doing this year, but um, let me find out and I'll call you back. So he called me a couple weeks later and said, we're doing Grease. Do you want to play Vince Fontaine? Cool. And I said, do I have to audition? He said, no, part yours if you want it. <laughs> so I did uh, Greece for three weeks up in Long Beach Island. And I met all these kids, literally kids, who had grown up watching oh, me. Sure. So they were more excited uh, about me being there when I was a nervous wreck, wondering, can I even still do this? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so three of them, one is a guy by the name of Drew Gasparini, he was on stage with me and he was a beautiful composer. He's worked his ass off and he is now writing the music. For uh, Karate Kid, which is premiering on Broadway in uh, in uh, a year. Wow. Okay. So there's story number one. Mm. He introduced me. Oh, by the way, we had this lovely young boy who was in Greece with us, who we all used to stay backstage and watch rehearse because we thought this kid is going to explode. His name is Anthony Ramos, yeah. who is now the star of so good In the Heights. So good. And the, the best kid ever. He's yeah. 28, and he's kicking ass and He's so names. good. And I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Alex Brightman, who I had lunch with yesterday. He's in town doing a pilot. But Alex Brightman, uh, besides starring as Beetlejuice on uh, Broadway and having the lead in School of Rock, is a brilliant writer. And he wrote me a one-man show called Everything in Its Place, The Life and Slimes of Mark Summers. Oh, wow. Wow. Which we did uh, at a place called Bloomington Playwrights in Bloomington, Indiana. We did it at the Adirondack Theater Festival. And believe it or not, next June... We're bringing it back. I'm what? going to be doing it up in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, the goal is to take it off Broadway, and that's uh, what we're shooting for now. That's wow! Fantastic. Yeah.
0: Well, your 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 career story, and your life story is so interesting. You battled cancer. Yeah. If you don't mind, just telling us what that was like. And
2: uh, I had stomach pains one night. Didn't feel good. Went to the doctor. Um, They did uh, all sorts of tests, and they weren't sure. They said, you have some sort of blockage. We're not sure what it is, but we're going to have to operate. So uh, they operated. I woke up. I'm a stand-up comic. I was trying to be fun and funny, so I was sort of groggy and a little bit of pain, and the doctor was hovering over me. I said, hey, doc, how am I doing? Do I have, like, cancer or something? He goes... As a matter of fact, you do. You need to see an oncologist right away. Oh, oh my God. They had taken 17 and a half inches of my small intestine out, Whoa. and they didn't know what kind of cancer I had. And so it took them a month to get me properly diagnosed, and I have something called CLL, chronic lymphatic leukemia. And uh, so I was on chemo the first time for two years. It worked uh, for about eight. Then I had chemo a second time. Then they tried chemo a year later. A third time didn't work. And so I'm now on um, these pills called Abruvitin, they only cost $148,000 a year. and uh, Why do what? they do that? Yeah, why do they do that? Tell what? me about it. And so um, I'm, for the rest of my life, on Abrovitin. Yeah. Uh, the CLL is... Uh, but you're you in know. remission now, correct? I'm but sorry? You're in remission I'm in remission now. currently. Uh, these pills have kept me infected. I just did my uh, six-month checkup last week and uh, knock on something. Oh, oh. Good. Man. And so um, initially I was depressed for a year. I couldn't sort of move on and finally was able to pull me up uh, out of that situation and put it on stage and talk about it. And, um, and that was the best uh, therapy I could have. Yeah.
0: It will, it will benefit people to hear you tell the story. And it's, a, it's an additional challenge for you, having the OCD, and cancer is the ultimate lack of control over your life, yeah. so you had to deal with it emotionally as well. Um,
2: absolutely. And, you know, you first play the Why Me game, and I'm in the oncologist's office the first day with my head down, thinking, what the hell's going on here? And this guy comes up to me, takes his hat, and starts hitting me. He goes, Summers, what are you doing? And I didn't even look up. And he goes, wake up. Look at me. And I looked up. Remember Fred Travolina? Yeah. I
0: saw his wife two weeks ago. She came to my show in Simi Valley, Lois, the Aww. nicest lady the nicest on the nicest woman planet. ever.
2: Yeah. And Fred was going through a horrible bit of uh, cancer. Uh, Mm. when we were going to the same oncologist. And he unfortunately died. They misdiagnosed doses. They They gave him the wrong um, medication. They gave him doses, as Lois had told me. I think uh, he was only supposed to get three, and they gave him five or six, which basically killed him. Oh, my God. Um, And I I was talking to Lois a lot after the whole situation. I've talked to her in years. But... uh, once again, a lovely lady. And oh. Fred, I did a show, I did the warm-ups on a show called Anything for Money that Fred was the host of. And we got to know each other real well. And he used to do these great voices uh, on my back where we used to have answering machines. Yeah. He used to do, you know, Michael Caine yeah. and Jackie Mason and all these fantastic, and a lovely man who passed away yeah, way Yeah,
0: yeah. He was like one of the big guys that Merv Griffin guests. Yes. He like, just did a million Griffins. And the horn, by
2: the way. He used to play yes. the horn all the time.
0: She's a sweetheart. She's very supportive. She's doing beautifully. She does. uh, She's the executive director of an organization called Pacific Pioneer Broadcasting. She is? Yes. I didn't know that. And it's uh, old people and their parents. And uh, she she organizes these lunches, but all the old game show hosts, Wink Martindale, Peter Marshall, all these guys are members of this organization. Oh, nice! And when they do a lunch, it's like being in a museum of broadcasting. Oh my God! And she happens to be the executive director. of Is that
2: program.
1: the lunch that I came to where they were honoring you and yes, I came with Cipriano? Yes, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really yeah, fun. We yeah. sat next to a, f- what was it? A Tom Kennedy.
0: Oh, Tom Tom Kennedy! Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean it was like a it was like a history lesson.
2: I uh, somebody did a documentary on me, and I invited Peter Marshall to come, and he couldn't couldn't make it. So I invited him to my house, and he came up, and he was drinking some water, and he you know Pete's ninety four years old, sure, and he started to choke on his water, and he said, "This may be it." And I said, "Well, Pete, you can't do that (laughs) in my house."
1: Not in his house. He's he's a neat freak.
2: Talk (laughs) about this guy's got more stories. Oh yeah. Oh my. he came to the house and we went to dinner and for three hours said things and told me stories yeah. that would make your head explode. Whoa. Uh because he knew everything. Every yeah. All those guys. see the Rosemary documentary? Oh yeah. 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 So yeah. I mean Peter is is great and I understand he's doing better. He had COVID and was in pretty bad shape. Oh right he got COVID? I didn't know that. No. Bad, bad. Um but he's doing better now and uh he he's the best guy ever. The best. Yeah, we'll have to have a long, career. yeah, and wink. I mean, think about it, wink. Yeah, yeah he moved to Palm Springs. Oh, he, he did. He
0: won't come back for meetings. He needed somewhere where those obscene colored jackets that he wears <laughs> were less
2: offensive. He's the only guy who made uh, Doc Severton look normal. You
0: know, <laughs> really, still, you know,
2: white shoes and like a plaid jacket. Oh my God. Forty years too late. And, and uh, the uh, color of his hair is like the color of Trump's face. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty bizarre.
0: But those big pipes, those big broadcaster pipes. Yeah. I remember listening to him on KMPC when I first moved out. Oh yeah, those
2: were voices. Oh my god, he yeah, had this great voice. Seacrest says that to me all the time. He goes, you know, forget the Larry Judge right now. He goes, you know, when guys get to your age, they start to sound like old and creaky. He said, you sound exactly the same as when I was a kid. You know, how the hell does that happen? Yeah.
1: You've got a young voice.
2: Yeah. Been lucky for
1: that. Well, I just want to thank you so much. This for, has been for so the, much fun. It's just been a blast. Thank I'm going to read so the closing credits. You can close your eyes for a moment. <laughs> we would love your for rest. you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at Media Path Podcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Mark Summer. Summers. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeMonda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. Can I
2: make my uh, noise with my cup one more time? Yeah, do
1: that. go ahead and do that. Where can we find you online, Mark? Oh, uh,
2: it's at the real Mark Summers, and uh, you know all those lovely social media things. Yeah, the real Mark Summers on Twitter.
1: And Fritz has more to tell you.
0: All right. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, and how could you not, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you would leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may find all kinds of binge-worthy material. We've had Diane Warren and Bill Moomey and the Cowsills and Henry Winkler and Keith Morrison. Lots of great people. Gary Puckett. We had Bill Medley last week. He was unbelievable. I'm so in love with him. Really really wonderful. And uh, thank you for spending an hour with us. And we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Be safe.